We labor daily to have enough to live on and to glorify God. So God created everything in original intent good, including work. And there is a way of looking at work through a biblical worldview. What is the real value of work? This is Moments of Hope with David Chadwick. Today we begin a brand new series called On the Job. Through this series, we'll gain a biblical worldview of the work God has personally called each of us to do. Today, David takes us to the book of Genesis, showing us how God's plan for work was woven into creation from the very beginning. Um, Welcome again. We are entering today into the series on work. It's called On the Job uh, to try to teach you what work means in your life. You know, I thought the other day as adults, we spend probably 33 to 40% of our lives at work. Think about that. 33 to 40% of our lives is spent at work. So what is God's perspective on work and how do we make work work from God's perspective? Today is the first message on that. And here's the phrase I wanna begin today's message with. Your worth is not your work, okay? Your worth is not your work. Now put the first person pronoun in that. My work is not my worth. Would you say it with me? My work is not my... One more time, a little louder. Call My work is not... So we're going to look at a biblical worldview of work. And I want to challenge all of you regularly that you have some kind of worldview. Uh, Some of you believe in what's called a natural philosophical worldview, which is basically the only thing that matters, the material world. There's no spiritual eternal world. You're basically seekers, you're atheists or agnostics, and that is your explanation of why life is the way it is. Some of you have a new age Eastern Hindu worldview, which believes that your choices give you karma. Your good choices will allow you to be reincarnated to a higher life form. Your bad choices allow you to be reincarnated to a lower life form. Uh, That is your worldview, how you look at the way the world operates. Well, I believe in a biblical worldview. That is my way of looking at life. I think it best explains everything that's going on in our lives, everything. And there is a way of looking at work through a biblical worldview. Let's do so today. Genesis 1 and 2, creation, God made it good. Genesis 3, the fall, God forming a nation called Israel. The rest of the Old Testament, he gave them moral laws, the one true worship. They failed in God's command to be a wholly different people. God brought his son into the world who gives all of us his gospel of grace. Those of us who receive it come together in the church and the church takes on God's calling to be his kingdom to the world, to bring his love, redemption, power, and goodness. And one day he's gonna come back and restore Genesis 1 and 2. You just got a biblical worldview in two minutes. But let's look at that biblical worldview now through the lenses of work, for God has a lot to say to us today. Genesis 1 and 2 talk about God's intention for work. Genesis 3 talks about the result of the fall and what that did to our work. Genesis 2 verses 1 through 3, and God blessed them And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then Genesis 2, 1 and 3, thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. 
So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all of his work that he had done in creation. Genesis 2, 8 and 9, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Genesis 2, 18 and 19, then the Lord said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make for him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. Genesis 3, 17, 19. Now, this is the fall. This is after Adam and Eve rebelled against God and allowed sin to shatter everything in the world, including work. Here's the result of their rebellion with work. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So, so what you have here is, first of all, God in creation created everything, including work. And you see in Genesis 1 and 2, as he created the world, he first of all declared work as good. It's good. On the seventh day, he stepped back and rested, not because he needed it, but to give us a way of living so that one out of seven days we would rest. He knew we needed it. But he stepped back and said, it's good. The world is operating the way I want it to operate. And Adam and Eve were created, and they lived in this garden in a perfect relationship with God. They walked through the garden and talked with God all day long, hearing his voice, him guiding them in every possible way, deeply at the core of who they were. They loved God with all their heart, soul, minds, and might. And they worked for God, and this work that God did was good. There was joy in it. They had absolute joy in the work that they did for God. And that work was, secondly, manual. God told Adam and Eve to dress, till, and keep the earth. He told them to subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heaven and over every living thing. They were to use their hands in labor in order to have a good work. So for those of you who are plumbers or gardeners or whatever, and you use your hands to work, that's good. Manual labor is good. God said so. And isn't it interesting that when God put on human flesh in Jesus, what was Jesus' job? What did he do? He was a a carpenter. He worked with his hands. Isn't that interesting that when God became one of us, he did manual labor. But thirdly, work is good because it's also mental labor that Adam was told by God as he brought the animals before him to name them. And God said, whatever you name them will be their name. And can you imagine that scene? What a great moment it's going to be in heaven to check that out in God's video system to see what that looked like. I mean, Adam has a huge animal that comes before him. And he goes, I think I'll call you hippopotamus. 
Now, why did he say hippopotamus? Because it probably was the first thing that came to his mind, so we've been calling him hippopotami since then. Or the elephant comes before you. Elephant, yeah, yeah, elephant. Rhinoceros, giraffe, you know, he named the animals. Now, now what does that say to us? Mental labor was also given by God to Adam and Eve, and that mental labor is good. So if you're a CPA or you oversee large amounts of money in a banking system or whatever it might be, and you use your mind as your work, that part of work is good. So God created everything in original intent good, including work. But folks, when the fall occurred in Genesis 3, and Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they declared to God, we will decide what's good and evil. No longer will we be under your authority. That treachery, that rebellion shattered God's original intent. And everything, everything in our world has been infected with the disease of sin since. Everything. Whether it's our human sexuality, whether it's our relationships, whether it's our marriages, They've all been infected with sin, with hard hearts and rebellion against God, and we have ushered into this world problems like racism and segregation and wars and rumors of wars. All different problems have come as a result of that sin. And another way that sin has been manifested through Genesis 3 is no longer is work joy. It's by the sweat of our brow. And by thorns and thistles, we labor daily to have enough to live on and to glorify God. Work now has become, in many different ways, first of all, fruitless. Thorns and thistles. We lose jobs. We have reductions in pay. That's a part of the human experience. Work has become pointless. Why get up in the morning? Why keep laboring day in and day out in this job? Many of you have sung, take this job and shove it more than once. Instead of take this job and love it like God originally intended. And work has become meaningless. Do you know what word we now use to describe work? Think about this. Well, first of all, job. What an indescript word. Job, job, job job. But think about this word. Here's another word to describe our work. Occupation. Think about it. Occupation. We basically work to occupy our time five days a week so that we can spend two days in leisure fun. We work five days hard so we can have some joy in life. Where in the garden, work was joyous. It was fun because we co-created with God and, and we knew that in his ability to create, we were participating in that in a very real way. But now work has become meaningless. In, in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, the writer says, work is vanity upon vanities, all is vanity. It just doesn't have any purpose. And I would suggest to you today the ultimate reality of the fall and its effect upon work is found in the reality of us making our work our worth. 
making our work our worth. We find our identity in those 40 to 45 to 50 to 60 to 70, for some of you, hours every week we spend doing our jobs. And it's true, isn't it? When you go to a place and you meet somebody for the first time, what's the question they most often ask you before any other question? What is it? What do you do? Not who are you, not what's your identity and where you find your life's foundation. The first question that's asked is, what do you do? America is basically a meritocracy where your identity is found in what you do. We're a performance-driven culture, and if we perform well, we're patted on the back, and if we're not, we're considered worthless. What do you do? Our work has become our worth, and this message, folks, is to tell you In Jesus, your work is not your worth. Your work is not your worth. Now, now what has happened in our culture is we've made our worth through our work, and it's evidenced by all outward appearances. The proof of our worth is all outward. So, if I have more possessions than other people... I'm more worthy than they are. And we live in a constant snare to compare environment. And that's why so many of us go into debt in order to possess more. And then every morning when our feet hit the ground, we sing the song, I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. (laughs) And also position. We work hard to have a position a better office that makes us better than other people so we feel like we're worth something. Not only our possessions and our position, but we have a people approval desire. So if people think we're worth something, we think we're worth something, and the way people approve of us is by advancing up the American meritocracy. And then, of course, if we have power over people and we're the boss, we've really achieved something and we're really successful in other people's eyes. It's all, though, outward. But here's the problem. (laughs) Those outward things don't last. And I want to invite you to find your worth, not in your work, but in an inward reality of who you are in Christ. Now, I want to challenge all of you with something that may hurt some of you, and I don't mean it to hurt, but I want to challenge you to live differently because I really believe the gospel makes a difference in our lives. You know, long ago, I was challenged by a friend, do this exercise. He said, paint a portrait of what you want in your last year of life and keep that portrait forever in your mind, and it's the goal that you're striving for for all of your years. I wanted to be a faithful pastor and preacher of the gospel, 
but I never had in my mind, oh, one day I want to preach to thousands of people. I just wanted to be faithful. So that wasn't a part of the portrait. That was an outward success. Here's what I wanted. I wanted Marilyn and me with gnarled, bony hands, graying with aging spots on our skin, holding our hands together. And surrounding us would be our three kids who all love Jesus with all their heart, souls, minds, and might. And then the next concentric circle outward in the portrait, I wanted tons of grandkids who just loved Jesus and loved us, Mare Mare and Pappy. And then if God would allow us to live long enough, you guessed it, the next concentric circle outward, what did I want? I wanted great-grandkids. And I wanted every single one of them to love Jesus. That was the most important part. I wanted all of them to know the inward reality of who they were in Christ and their worth was not defined by their work or any outward extremity, was, but was defined by their inward relationship with Jesus Christ. Because I knew that's what the only thing that lasts forever. The only thing. You're listening to Moments of Hope with David Chadwick. Thanks for listening. Coming up, David joins me in the studio with a Davidism called, It's Always the Right Time to Do the Right Thing. We'll be right back. This is the Ministry Minute, focusing on ministries that have a positive impact on our community. I'm Mark McManus, and here is Jim Noble with the Dream Center Charlotte. Hello, my name is Jim Noble with the Charlotte Mecklenburg Dream Center. And Bo and I, the director of the Dream Center, just wanted to take a minute and tell you guys thank you. Moments of hope. David and Marilyn Chadwick, all of you there, Dean, uh, we all have been phenomenal for us. Uh, you, you've been there since 08 when we started King's Kitchen. And that kind of grew into the Dream Center and the meals we've fed the last eight weeks probably exceeding 55,000 now, I guess. Uh, we're so grateful you guys have made such an impact in the city by reaching out to those that have needs greater than we have. And uh, what do you think, Bo? Yeah, so it's been amazing to, to just watch the, the work that's happened um, with the meals as they've gone out. You know, uh, we, I always tell people it's not about the food, it's about the relationships that are formed and the ministry that takes place. And so, um, and JT Williams and Tom Westboro and Reed Park, I mean, it has opened up doors that we never thought would be open. Um, you know, we've seen people come out um, and just welcomed us with open arms, just so grateful for the meals. And, and we just thank you, Moments of Hope, and just this couldn't be, this wouldn't be possible without you guys. And, you know, uh, the, the first call we made uh, when we decided to go this route and provide these meals was the Moments of Hope. And it was uh, a phone call that was met with a resounding yes. And so we're so appreciative of you guys and just um, everything you all do for us and for the kingdom. And not only that, but you uh, also set into our kitchen in the Dream Center now. This week started producing meals there, and as the restaurants open back up, all the meals will shift to the Dream Center with the kitchen you helped us do. So we're so grateful, you guys. God bless you. God bless Moments of Hope, and we just pray an unlimited return harvest on the seed you sowed into this ministry. Thank you very much. I'm Jen Houston. Thanks for listening today. 
Joining me in the studio is our pastor, David Chadwick. David, thanks for being with us today. Hi, Jen. Great being with you as well. Well, today's Davidism is called, It's Always the Right Time to Do the Right Thing. Sounds like there's a lot of wisdom in this one. You know, this is another one from my college basketball coach, Dean Smith. And people may not know that when he came to the University of North Carolina in 1959 as the assistant basketball coach, he saw the prejudice and the injustice that existed, particularly against black people. And he wanted to really make a difference there. He wanted Mm. to change the atmosphere and culture, not only of the city of Chapel Hill, but of the entire University of North Carolina system. So he began to do things that were quite remarkable, like he would go into white-only restaurants with a black seminary student from a local seminary, and he'd sit down, and the people would object and say, you can't do that. He's not welcome here. And Coach Smith would say, well, you just need to know if you kick me out now, you're kicking out any future time that our team will come in here and eat in your restaurant. Mm -hmm. Well, of course, basketball was king in 1959. In 1957, North Carolina had an undefeated season and had won the national championship. So people loved basketball in Chapel Hill. And eventually, Coach Smith started uh, taking more people of color into these restaurants, and more and more, they began to be integrated. Hmm. Moreover, Coach Smith was the one who tried to recruit the first African-American athlete to the University of North Carolina. He tried with a guy named Lou Hudson, who went on to play at the University of Minnesota and become a great player in the NBA. Somehow, his academic requirements wouldn't match what the University of North Carolina was requiring at that point, but Coach Smith was adamant in trying to integrate the system. And then finally, in 1966, he brought in Charlie Scott, the first African-American athlete at the University of North Carolina, someone I played with. I was a year behind him, and I watched all of the racial epitaphs slurred toward Coach Smith and Charlie during those awful years. But Coach Smith stood firmly that he wanted to integrate not only the city of Chapel Hill and its restaurants, et cetera, but also the University of North Carolina basketball program and sports Mm. in general. And he did so. It was a remarkable achievement by a remarkable man. Well, when I was talking with him one day and asking him about why he did that right when he came in 59, all through his years until finally everything was integrated, he said this phrase, David, it's always the right time to do the right thing. Hmm. He said, whether it's 1959 or 1964 or 1966 or whenever, it's always the right time to do the right Mm -hmm. thing. Too many of us wait until tomorrow to try to do the right thing. We put it off. We procrastinate. And Coach Smith says, justice delayed is justice denied. Mm -hmm. So if it's now the right time to do the right thing, do it Mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. So I would adjure all of our listeners to think about whatever you need to do that's right. Don't delay it. Mm -hmm. Do it now. Mm -hmm. And I love the proverb. Doesn't it say somewhere in Proverbs about withholding a blessing? Never withhold a blessing if it's within your ability to bless someone. And, you know, with talking about things that are going on right now in our world, you know, of course, we've still got Corona kind of dying out here. But I've always found a strength in this quote from, um, I believe it's Charles Spurgeon that says, fear not death. Thank God we as believers do not have to fear this. The cholera may come again next summer, and I pray that it may not, but if it does, it matters not to me. I will toil and visit the sick by night and by day until I drop. And if it takes me, sudden death is sudden glory. We can pray for our neighbors right now in this time. Fear not. We should activate our children and our households to pray for those who are suffering all the time. Do what's right 
right now. It's always the right time to do the right thing. When Christians do that, we'll make an impact upon our world. Thank you so much, David, for these thoughts today. Thank you, listeners, for joining us. And if you'd like to receive a written Moment of Hope every morning in your inbox, go to momentsofhopechurch.org. Subscribe there. And every morning at 7 a.m. arriving in your inbox will be, from my heart to yours, a Moment of Hope. This has been Moments of Hope with David Chadwick, Senior Pastor of Moments of Hope Church. Today's message is from our online worship service, and you can be a part of our service each Sunday morning at both 9 and 11 o'clock by going to momentsofhopechurch.org. While you're online, be sure to sign up for David's daily Moments of Hope, delivered every morning to your inbox. Also, check out David's weekly Hopecast, They're both free and available through our website. Again, that web address is momentsofhopechurch.org. For David and the entire Moments of Hope Church staff, this is Jen Houston. Have a great weekend.